Hey, this is Jamie from Stonemeyer Games, and today I'm here for something a little bit different. This isn't a top 10 list of game mechanisms or, or games that I've played. Rather, I asked Stonemeyer ambassadors recently. These are people who volunteer in some way for Stonemeyer Games or try to support Stonemeyer Games, um, which I greatly appreciate. I asked them if there are any questions that they'd like me to answer on a video, Question, questions about game design, game development, prototyping, that sort of thing. Uh, I also have some great questions for entrepreneurship and crowdfunding. I'll save that for the Stonemaier Games blog, but this channel is all about game design and game development, playtesting, prototype, all that stuff. I have some other links in the, in the description here that, that might help you out there too, but I have 10 questions that I thought might be great for me to answer um, here on video. I can't guarantee the answers will be great, uh, but I think they're interesting questions to ask. I'm going to share my answers or whatever answers I have. I'm curious to hear your answers too, because you might have some where you're like, oh, Jamie forgot to say this, or I, I think this. I'd love to hear your opinions as well. So let me start out with uh, the first question. How do you know when to give up on a game idea? I think this is a great question. Great question, because um, I think sometimes uh, games, it, sometimes I see published games and I'm like, how did this get all the way through to a published game? This, this is a great experiment, but I don't know if this really needed to exist. That's a little judgmental of me to say. You might think that about some of my games. That's completely fine. But uh, I think it's a great question to ask uh, as you're going through the, the design process. Ask yourself, am I still excited about this game? Is this game still special and innovative and fun? Is this game still functional even? Um, all too often, I think a game can be, you work so hard on getting it to be functional that, uh, that you start to forget about the fun, that maybe the game in its great function has stopped being fun. Um, and so I think this is a great question for any designer to ask throughout the process. The question here, I think they're asking me specifically, how, how do I know? How does anyone know when, when to actually give up? And I think part of that is asking yourself, is this still fun? Um, and if the answer is no, I, I think nine times out of 10, that is a, a decent reason to either give up on it or put it aside for a while and come back to it and try to find the fun in it. You're always trying to find the fun. Um, for me, I have a lot of game ideas. I, I am not lacking for game ideas, me mechanical ideas, thematic ideas, clever twists on games. I have long, long lists of ideas. There are only a few of those ideas that I actually take the time to really brainstorm and delve into and get that first prototype to the table. And even then, oftentimes when I get that first prototype to the table, or if I have fun just brainstorming on a piece of paper, even then I often just set that aside and maybe I'll come back to it later, maybe I never will. I don't even know if I'd call that giving up on an idea. It's rather a decision to not pursue this idea in lieu of other things that I think are more special or that I'm more excited about that I think could have a bigger impact um, that I think are more different than some other games that already exist. So I think that's part of it, like making that choice early on uh, to pursue something that's more special than, than something that you just had fun brainstorming or, or doing like one prototype of. I think it gets harder as you get deeper into the process though, into the process, because then you have this, this sunk cost. You put a lot of your time and energy and love into this game. And yes, maybe it's working okay. Maybe it's functioning. Um, but uh, but that's where and that's where it comes back to the question: is it is it functional but not fun, and uh, or if, or are people just having or are people really struggling with it? And we've even had games. We've yeah, some of our games. We've even had a game 
go into five layers of blind playtesting. So complete, completely went through the design process, the development process, and deep into playtesting. And yet we had to acknowledge that the game wasn't good enough. People just weren't enjoying it enough for us to justify publishing it. We already had art for the game that I hope to use for another game someday. But, uh, and that, so that's another signal for me. If, if playtesters, if you have local or blind playtesters, unguided playtesters who are still not resonating with the game after, after you've done, after you spent a ton of time on the game, even then, I would say it is worth backing away and saying, this is not good enough. This is not my best work. Um, I need to set this aside or I need to give up on it and focus on something else. It's really tough to do then, especially if you've invested in the game, um, even just invested your time. But I think it, uh, that, that if, if playtesters really aren't really enjoying it, then people, when you actually print the game and put it out there, even if it looks great, people still aren't really going to enjoy it then. Long answer for that one. I mean, I make such long answers for all of these, but that's a, that's a great question, a great thing to think about. Number two, how do you retheme a game? This is one that I think I, I composed this list yesterday. I've been thinking about it ever since then. And um, my my instinctive answer and my overall answer is don't don't retheme a game. If you have designed a game from the ground up with a certain theme, then retheming it will usually well, actually, I don't want to speak in generalizations here, but I think retheming, I think building the game with the, with a game, building a game with the theme from the ground up is a way for that game to really come to life through that theme, for the, for the mechanisms to be closely tied to the theme in the final product. And so if at some point you'd say, I'm going to completely remove this entire theme and replace it with another theme, that's a whole different game. Like just start over with a different game with that theme and build it, build the new game with that theme from the ground up. I think it will be a better game that way. So rather than re-theming a game, just design another game with the theme that you're more interested in. However, I do say that knowing that there are examples out there of games where they have been rethemed and it worked out pretty darn well. Um, and we even have an example here at Stonemaier Games. We have one recent example and one older example, Pendulum. Pendulum was a game about ancient Rome originally. And I wasn't all that interested in publishing a game about ancient Rome. And so I suggested we retheme it to a fantasy setting. And for better or for worse, Pendulum is not one of our more successful games. I don't think the theme is at fault for that, though. And uh, the fantasy theme, I... I think added uh, a little bit of fun flavor to a game that might have been a little a little flavorless without it, a little dry. So um, that was not particularly difficult to, to retheme it, though. Uh, we just removed Roman names and Roman places and we replaced them with fantasy names and fantasy places. Not a deep retheme. Our newest game, Apiary. Uh, Apiary was originally just a bee-themed game. Bees on the real world in the real world, and uh, I, I thought that maybe it was a little bit, not the game mechanisms weren't similar, but on the surface, superficially, it sounded similar to a game called Honey Buzz, which is already a game about pretty much real world bees. They're a little anthropomorphic, but pretty much real world bees. And so I suggested to, to designer Connie Volgeman that we add a sci-fi twist on it, that we make, that we show that these are bees that are even more intelligent, even more advanced. Um, they've become the preeminent life form on earth that we tried to embrace that theme. And in this case, uh, 
Connie loved that idea. She liked the sci-fi twist and it helped her with some design problems that had been limiting her. So I think this is the, maybe the one area to think about with a retheme. If you have based the original theme for the game on something in real life and you feel limited by the real science of real life and that's impeding the mechanisms, it's impeding the fun, um, maybe it's impeding other elements of the game, how intuitive it is to learn or play then consider putting a little speculative twist on it because that gives you the flexibility to add some new layers to the game that you maybe weren't able to add on with the, the real world version of that theme. So we did that with Apiary and made the game really sing after we made that change. Number three, what considerations go into deciding just how complex a game should be? I don't have a lot to say on this subject that I'm aware of. Um, I think it's a good question to, as you're going into game design, if you're, as, as you're thinking about game design, as I think about my game designs, um, wondering how complex a game should be. And in general, my approach is I like deeply complex games that are very accessible, that are very easy to onboard myself into or onboard a new player into. So I like simple action systems combined with a wide, typically a wide variety of cards or tiles or whatever, whatever variable elements the game is offering and having the complexity emerge from that or from the engine building, from the progression systems. Um, so that is just my general design philosophy. Have a very simple, streamlined, easy to learn, easy to start play, taking turns, action system combined with uh, complexity that emerges through the variable components. So that's my overall philosophy on games. When you're, when you're, when, when I'm designing the game and trying to figure out how complex that particular game should be, um, really that it comes down to playtesting and seeing how easy players are able to get into the game. Cause even, yeah, for me, even a more complex game, um, if the mechanisms for a game are seen through that complexity, I'm like, okay, this, Sounds this will work great as a more complex game. Um, if the the action system is too complicated, is also just as complex, then I'm going to tone that back a little bit, or maybe a lot, to give players more access to those complex elements that are more interesting in the game. Um, this isn't a great answer for this question. I acknowledge that it it's it's something that I I you know I have this general philosophy, but also. Um, might be a little bit more about uh, about playing time than complexity, really, uh, where I, I, I look at the, the value that the game is offering players and how I think they'll play it and who I think they'll play it with. Those are just the types of things that I think about when deciding how complex the game should be and how long it should be and what style of game it should be. Number four, what were your games like the very first time you played with another person? Were they actually a game yet, or were they just modeling a main mechanism on scraps of paper? So my, I, I talk about this in another video, but very briefly, my, um, my design approach, especially over the last few years, has been that I playtest a game solo, just by myself, for multiple iterations until I think the game is fun and functional enough to show to other people, to show to other people locally. Um, whether it's Megan or, or friends or people within Stillmeyer Games here in St. Louis, so uh, the way that so that's like that's the first step for me. It isn't even um, someone else, but uh, I do consider it a game when it gets to that point. Like it, it still needs a lot of work, but there is a. a I, I'm trying to find a functional game there. It's not just me throwing completely random things at the table and trying to figure it out. Typically. So I'm, I'm working on a game right now, and I 
I, I mean, it's a very big game. And so I didn't want to have to design everything for the game before testing it. That, that can be a monumental waste of time if you do that. So rather, I created a minimal viable, viable product version of the game with only some cards uh, that uh, it, just enough that I needed to actually test the action system in the game to see if it worked. Um, and so I think that's my main approach when I'm getting the game to the table early on. Just have enough components so that I can actually take a few turns of the game and see what that feels like. Even those components, I'm creating them on InDesign. I like them to, I like to think about the format of the game from even those early prototypes. And it's just faster for me to iterate that way than using scraps of paper. But yeah, I'm just trying to have the minimal number of components I need to take a few turns of the game to see how the action system works. And usually then I add a few layers onto it. I go a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper into the game until I have a completely functional game and then I share it with other people. Number five, what are some internal or, or slash personal or external slash industry roadblocks that a new designer may need to overcome in order to get their game out to people to enjoy? Yeah, this is, this is a, a really, really interesting question. So part of it, I think, is about playtesting. I think playtesting is a roadblock in itself. I think it's probably fairly easy for you to find some people local to you to playtest with you, whether they are family members, partners, friends, or maybe a local playtest group. I think there, there are impediments there, there are roadblocks there, but I think that is fairly easy. I think it's much more difficult though to find blind or unguided playtesters, people that you don't know or, or people who aren't local to you who are willing to learn your game from the rules that you typed out, print out the game from the prototype and play it and give you feedback on it. I feel very fortunate that, that people have signed up to do that for Stillmeyer Games, but I think as a newer designer, that's that's a that's a big roadblock. I um I have some resources on our website for ways to work around that roadblock. Uh, one of them being that you can put yourself out there in the gaming community, online communities in particular, and say, "Hey, I'm available to playtest a game," um, and either just put it, just leave it at that, and hopefully get some reciprocation at some point, or say, "You know, I I'm looking for a blind playtest exchange where I will." Play, blind playtest your game if you blind playtest my game. I think that is a reasonable exchange to put out there. Um, so that, that I think is a major roadblock uh, that, that is tough to get around. As for external industry roadblocks, I mean, every publisher is a gatekeeper in some way. Uh, if a publisher is accepting submissions, we, we like some our games accepts a few hundred submissions for games every year and or we don't accept them. We, we, receive them and we consider them and maybe we decide to publish one or two of them. We are a gatekeeper. I think that's why so many designers decide that they just want to, they really want to publish their game or they want their game to be published and so they self-publish it instead. And that is a, a viable way to go. It's how Stonemaier Games started. Um, but there is a big difference, I think, between being a game designer and being a game publisher. The latter has a lot more, requires a lot more time, resources, money, risk, and eventually expertise. You, you have to be pretty good at running a business. Um, whereas if you're just doing game design, that is a small, well, not small, but that is a very focused thing that you're doing. You're focusing on game design, not all the other things that come with running a business. Um, so I think that is one way around that roadblock, but it comes with its own many, many more roadblocks along with it if you decide to self-publish and run your own publishing company. Even just for one game, you are running a publishing company. Um, so the roadblock there is our, our publishers like Stonemaier Games and many other publishers who are considering submissions, game submissions from you. We are the roadblock and um, 
uh, I have a whole video about how to pitch a game to, to publishers that you can check out if you want to see how to overcome that roadblock. Even then, you might still run into that roadblock time and time again, and eventually you might just decide to self-publish the game or to find or to work on a different game that publishers are more interested in. That's okay too. It's okay, really. It is okay to design games and work on games and not publish them, not have them be published. It can just be fun sometimes to, to, to create for the sake of creation. Number six, what brings you the most joy when making prototypes or playtesting prototypes? Or is the prototyping process just a necessary chore for you? Um, yeah, so I, I have a couple different answers here. I mean, my favorite part of any game design process is, uh, is really the initial brainstorm process because that's when anything is possible. I, I have pages and pages filled with, filled with writing. I use pencil and paper when I brainstorm and I'm just thinking of new things and how, how the theme could be matched with the mechanisms and mechanisms could be matched with the theme. Anything is possible then. That is my favorite part. I love that. Uh, I also do enjoy the many part, parts that follow, the, the, the prototyping, the iteration, the local playtesting, the solo playtesting, the, the, the blind playtesting, getting those blind playtesting results and iterating some more. I enjoy all levels of, those, of that process in different ways. As for the prototyping process itself, like the making the, of the prototypes, um, it, it depends on what stage it is. I, like I said, I always work in InDesign. It's a Adobe Acrobat or Adobe um, program that can, that can be used for, for, um, for prototyping. And it's fine. I, I, I generally enjoy it. There are, um, I'm, again, I'm working on a game right now where I'm working through a, a prototype with a lot of different cards and it is, it's kind of daunting to create so many cards, uh, and to, to really, like there's there's sometimes where I'm creating cards where it's a little bit of copy and paste. Like they're, they're similar cards that do similar things with slightly different resources or slightly different elements to them. But they're also cards where I put, they require a lot of brain power to make those cards feel really special and unique. And I like bo having both of those because I like kind of sometimes the mindless activity of just generating a bunch of cards that... Um, that need to be in the game, but don't require a lot of thought. And there's also times where I really enjoy sitting down and like, I feel like I've really accomplished something if I've designed even just five or 10 cards, each of which feel really unique and special and tied to the theme of the game. So I like, I like all these different things. There isn't a lot that truly feels like a chore other than actually cutting out a prototype, like printing and cutting out a prototype. That is a bit of a chore, but I found it that I can just put on a podcast, put on a show, um, on my computer and listen or watch along while I while I cut and that's kind of relaxing too. Nice to be able to do that. Number seven, what have I done when in game development a game is announced that uses something that you've been working on? Yeah, this is the the fear of every designer, right? That you spend all your time and effort working on something and someone else announces something that looks pretty similar, that has a similar theme, a similar mechanism. Maybe it has the same exact name of the game that you're working on. And I mean, this has certainly happened. It happened actually with, with Expeditions. Expeditions used to have a different name because it had another game came out with the same name. That was just name, a, a, a similarity in name only. Um, but yeah, it, can, it, it doesn't feel great. I think when, you, when, you, when I have done, when I've spent a lot of time working on something and realized that someone else is putting out something fairly similar, like even Expeditions. Uh, I started working on Expeditions before, um, I think it was after Lost Ruins of Arnak after Dune Imperium, but it was before Clank Catacombs. And so I had this, 
I had what I thought was going to be one of the first deck building style games. This isn't exactly a deck building game, but deck building style game with tiles, which it wasn't even, that isn't even completely true because um, there are some other games that do this. The, the El Dorado does a little bit of that, but using uh, like moving onto a new tile and, and revealing it. And then Clank Catacombs came out and I was like, oh, okay, well, uh, and it was a good moment for me to realize that on the surface, Clank Catacombs looked pretty similar to, um, to Expeditions in that, you know, deck building game combined with tile reveals as you're moving around a specific area of the world and different tiles have different benefits on it. But then when I dug deeper, of course, Clank Catacombs is very different than Expeditions. They're very different games. So superficially, yes, they look very similar, um, but, uh, or somewhat similar. They use similar mechanisms, but in truth, they're very different. So that was, it's kind of a, I found it to be somewhat uh, healthy for me to look at it through that lens. It's also an opportunity. You can treat it like an opportunity to say, okay, this game is going to look pretty similar to my game, or my game is going to look pretty similar to, to this other game that already exists. Um, how can I make my game, how can I differentiate my game a little bit more? How, what can I do to make my game even more special? It's an opportunity for innovation. So even though it may not feel great in that moment, it is a chance for you to make your game stand out even more because this other game that might be compared to it is there for you to learn about, is there for you to research. You now have that open information. They don't know about your game, but you know about their game now and can, and can differentiate your game from it. Number eight, what makes an effective and appealing prototype? So this is a big question, but it is something that's been on my mind recently. I've talked about it recently a little bit with Apiary because I've said that the prototype submission that we received for Apiary from designer Connie Vogelman was one of the best prototypes that we've ever received. It wasn't pretty. It was very basic graph design. Um, but what made it so effective and appealing was that it was clear. It was very clear what we were looking at on each of the tiles. It, it, the Connie focused not on how pretty it was, but on how, uh, how clear the visual language of the game was. We were able to play it. That's the key for any prototype. Uh, and I'm answering this question from the, from the perspective of a publisher that plays prototypes from other designers. That playability is more important than anything else by far. We need to be able to play your game and decide if we like your game. One of the things that Connie did is that in, she included a ton of little plastic baggies where she wrote on the bag, this is, this is the recruit tiles, or these are recruit tiles, these are development tiles. So that way, when we were trying to figure out which tiles were which going through this rubric of components that we've never seen before, we were able to just hold up the bag and be like, oh, these are the recruit tiles. It says so right on the bag. We don't have to find this someplace in the rulebook. Um, that, that in itself made the game really easy to get to the table. Uh, for, especially for such a complex game, apiary, the apiary prototype, because of how much effort Connie spent into um, labeling everything and making everything as clear as possible, including many visual examples and the rules, we were able to have a good first play experience with the game and really enjoyed it. So yeah, the more little bags and labels and things that you can use, things that you won't need for the final version of the game, but for the prototype where everything kind of looks the same, uh, Having, having everything labeled, and for anything that you do print out and include with that prototype, that you make that visual language really as clear as possible. Um, it, yeah, it, that, that goes a long way. There's even an, there's another prototype I played a few months ago that uh, that was very confusing. Like it was, it was a really tough prototype and it really got in the way of the design, a design that I, I 
gave it another shot. I gave it another chance and enjoyed it much more once I understood how things were working. But uh, but there are huge elements of, of the visual design that were that made the game very difficult to understand. I, I'm trying to think of a specific example here, but like I think the text on the cards was huge. It was huge text and it kind of bled, like one section of text bled into the other section of text. It was in all caps. All caps text is rather hard to read unless it's just a title, but a paragraph of all caps text is, is rather difficult to read. Um, that just made it rather difficult to, to, to play this game. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is where running your game through at, at, like even just one blind play test um, can go a long way uh, to figure out how that prototype can be as appealing as possible before you submit it to a publisher. Number nine, what mechanism has been the hardest so far to incorporate into your games? Um, so I have two that came to mind for this. In general, combat mechanisms are really hard for me to design. I think part of that is that I don't play a lot of games with combat mechanisms. And... Um, and also, it just isn't something that I gravitate towards as, as a designer. I don't get all that excited about, about combat in games. But part of it is, I think combat is just really difficult because you have to balance the idea that if you have combat between players, this is between players in particular, that you need to give player A a reason to attack in the first place, or they won't attack. If there isn't enough of an incentive for them to attack, or if it's too risky for them to attack, they won't attack, and then there's no combat at all. And B, you need to give player B, the defender, you need to give them a reason to put up a fight. Otherwise, they won't. And if they won't put up a fight, then it gives player A even more of a reason to attack more often. Every little decision here between the two players, every the incentives for putting up a fight and putting up a defense and how they do it, um, that's everything in the game. That's There's so many different little decision points to put into that. Uh, that that makes it rather difficult to balance and then you have all the other systems involved whatever your system is for combat whether it's dice whether it's cards whether there's an element of chance if there's no element of chance uh it is it is really difficult for me to design that when i was designing the content the combat for scythe it took over 20 iterations before i got it to a place where i was happy with it the other one that came to mind a little bit more recently is what was with expeditions expeditions had for a while a rondelle system. I really wanted to put kind of a one-way action selection track, a, a rondelle of exploration in the game. And I tried and tried and tried, and I just could not figure out a way to do it. Actually, with Expeditions, the, the other mechanism that I tried and could not crack the code on this on this um, mechanism was deck building. Um, I probably could have used a very basic deck building system in the game, but I, want, I really wanted to do something different with deck building because we have so many deck building systems that, uh, deck building games that use a similar system. So I wanted to do something different, like Dune Imperium did something different. Lost Runes of Arnak did something different. But I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't make a different deck building system work. And so instead of doing that or doing a standard deck building system, I used a system much more similar to Concordia, where there is no randomness in the deck. Uh, you have full control over the cards that are in your hand. You play them into an active row, and then at certain times you refresh those active cards back to your hand so that you can play them again. Um, so deck building has posed a pretty big puzzle for me as well. And last, are you looking into integrating games with AR or app components? Why or why not? What about a stance on using AI in your work? So yeah, two different questions here. One is augmented reality and app components. Uh, for me, in general, I play games so I can turn off my screen. I don't want to look at screens when I play games other than taking a few photos of the game. Beyond that, I, I don't... 
I don't want to spend time on screens when I'm when I'm at the tabletop with my friends. So um, while there are games with screens and apps and augmented reality that that I think are cool and that maybe and that have made those games better, it's something that I stay away from as a gamer and therefore stay away from as a designer. Also, adding those elements to a game makes the game more difficult to to play test, um, and it also adds. A lot of time to the development of a game, to the creation of a game that, that I don't have control over. I have control over how much time I spend on any given design or any given prototype, but I can't control a third-party developer working on an app for a game. Um, and that can that can lead to a whole other logistical puzzle for a game. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just not interested in doing that. It could also, I think, impact the longevity of a game too. Like how long will someone be able to maintain that app? That app? What if the server crashes? Um, Things like that. We have I have I have one game that uses a, a very brief web app, and even a very streamlined small web app has led to some issues where maybe uh, the the hosting server changed something about their their hosting service, and people weren't able to access the app temporarily, and that impeded their experience with the game. So uh, I try to keep things to cardboard if I can. Um, what about your stance on using AI in your work? So my stance, our stance at Summer Games, is that we have not, will not, and do not use AI for any creative aspect. We're not using AI language, language uh, text generation. We don't use AI art. Um, the last time I, I, honestly, the last time I signed on to any of these websites where there's anything AI related at all was a couple of years ago when they had the, the, the first... AI image generating app. Um, I checked it out. I wrote a quick article about it. I thought it might be interesting for prototyping, where if you you can you can create some ideas for for a prototype, some images for a prototype. Even that, I haven't you I've never actually used that, and um, I've never used Chat GPT or anything like that. Uh, I I don't even know if that's the right acronym. But so yeah, our stance is that that. We are, are, are not replacing any creative human element with AI at all. The only element of, of AI that is connected to Stillmire Games is, the, uh, is that some of our digital games let you play against an AI opponent. So that is, uh, and even that is very specific to the game. Maybe someday that AI will be uh, more robust. And really, I, I, in that way, the, the one other way that I could see us using AI a little bit is for not to replace playtesters, but to do brute force playtesting um, to make sure that the balance of our games is better. Because there's always, there's human limitations on the number of times that we can playtest a game. But if we can run it through an AI app that can learn the rules of the game and actually play the game 10,000 times in three minutes and figure out some balancing issues, I'm open to doing that. Um, it definitely will not replace human playtesters in any way. But, uh, but for the sake of balancing, I'm, I'm open to using AI in that way. But for any creative purpose, writing, editing, art, graphic design, I'm not interested in using AI for, for any of those. Yeah, those are my 10 answers to your 10 questions. I'd love to hear your thoughts if you have different answers or if you want to expound on any of these questions or if you want me to go deeper in any of them. If you, if you, want, if you have any follow-up questions, let me know in the comments below. I'm happy to help out. And also, I will link below to some of the resources that I mentioned as I've gone through these questions in the video, in the video description. Thanks.